Thank you, Adam. Look, I was, it's a great privilege to be able to be and back here again and to share something of it from God's Word. If you've got your Bibles there, you, uh, if you turn to Romans chapter 8, I'm looking at verses 31 to 39. So it's a very familiar part of the Bible. But it'd be good if you have your Bible there because I'll be referring to those parts through my talk. So Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. And as you're turning there, let me pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this portion of your word, again we pray for your help. Give us understanding of what we read. I pray you give us a mind that is soft and responsive to you. We pray that as a result of this, that we may have feet that go out into action for the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. In 1979, Billy Graham came to Australia. In a television interview, he expressed his supreme confidence, his certainty that when he died, he would be with God in heaven. And I can remember watching what was unfolding on a television screen with a group of unbelievers. And I could see the sneering that was happening in, right in front of me at that particular time. And people responding by saying how arrogant Billy Graham's assurance was. And they made such statements as, how can a man be so bold and audacious to make a claim like he's just done on the television? And what gives him the right to say such a thing? Especially when he's a man like the rest of us. Well, he's got flaws and limitations as well. And he's in no ways perfect. What do we say to those who believe Billy Graham's assurance or confidence is either unfounded or simply the brash talk of an American evangelist. Can we say anything in such accusations? Or do we agree with people who suggest Billy Graham was wrong to make such a statement? Uh, this type of accusation, and others like it are not new, has anyone here done any kind of uh, outreach evangelism or gone door knocking you only need to say that you can be forgiven the love of Christ and people will quickly sneer at you and think how mad you are uh, well how are we going to answer these kind of criticisms well let's see how the New Testament answered these criticisms as you look to Romans chapter 8 for an answer well Paul who's the writer of uh, this particular part of the Bible, answers his accusers concerning God's assurance in two very distinct ways. By first of all appealing to the law court in verses 31 to 34 and secondly by stressing the love of God in verses 35 to 39. These verses in 31 to 34 have all the imagery of being actually in a law court we see that beginning in verse 31. Who's going to bring a charge? So we've got a defendant and a prosecutor already. Verse 33, who's going to justify or declare righteous? Here's a judge going to make a verdict. Verse 34, who's going to condemn? Verse 34, who's going to intercede on behalf? You can picture a judge, a prosecutor and a defendant and the whole sense of trial taking place. 
It begins with a question in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? Well, what are these things that Paul is mentioning? These things are the summing up of all that has been written up to this most important chapter of Romans 8, describing how a person in chapter 1 of Romans is without excuse before God. Then in chapter 3, how all the human race has fallen short of God's glory and no one can stand before a holy God and be declared righteous. And just when the situation looks beyond hope, in chapter 5, hope arrives. An answer is given. We are told that we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus. He has paid the penalty for my sins, my transgressions, through his death on the cross. And that's why the very beginning of Romans chapter 8 begins with, there is now no condemnation because the penalty for sin has been paid. And it serves to introduce a series of questions whose sole purpose is to assure all those in the Lord Jesus Christ of their unshakable security. He begins by saying in verse 31 that God is for us. God is for us? We see that in the few preceding verses, in 28 to 30, we have God's saving initiative on view. God's wonderful foreknowledge of us, calling us before the foundation of the world. His predestining of us into the image of his son, the Lord Jesus. He's calling us out of darkness into his wonderful light. He's justifying us, or in other words, declaring us right in his sight. And his final glorification of us when on that last and final day we'll stand before him pure and spotless in his sight. Since God is for us, then all our adversaries, all our accusers are of no account. For who can frustrate God's wonderful saving purposes? What is anyone going to say to the judge of the whole universe? Here is the judge, the final judge, and his verdict is sure. Friends, there is no higher court to which anyone can bring their charge. It has already gone to the highest court in the whole universe and his verdict is sure. He says we are not guilty. This is great news for every Christian. Now you may feel very unworthy you may believe that you're not good enough in his sight. You may believe that the sin that you've committed and have never been spoken to anyone can never be forgiven. You may feel emotionally very distant from God. You may believe that God has dealt with you a very rough hand in this life and that he could never say that he loved you. Friends, Paul's words are sure. God is for us. And it can help us to see trial and difficulty in a very different light. And in the divine courtroom, there will be no accusations against you 
that will carry any weight, then who can be against us? The proof of this fact that God is for us is seen in the very next verse, verse 32. He did not spare his one and only son, but gave him up for us all. God shows that his love is for us by not sparing his one and only son, but giving us up on our behalf so that we may live. The one who knew no sin became sin on my behalf. He took the punishment that I deserved. It is a mark or a statement of the friendship between God and his people. Let me ask you this question. Who delivered up Jesus to die? It wasn't Judas for money, nor Pilate out of fear, nor even the Jews out of envy. But I suggest to you it was the Father who gives up the Son out of love. And when again you come to the most well-known part of that Bible, John 3.16, for God gave his one and only Son. It is the Father's saving initiative that's on view. So the question now, who is going to bring a charge? against God's chosen in the light of what we've already seen. Verse 33. And it's not that anyone won't bring a charge against God's people. If you go down in your Bible to verse 35, we'll see that. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, sword. It's not a bubble-wrapped experience that we have as Christians. Rather, on that final day, there will be no accusation that will carry any weight before the throne room of God. Yes, you will face charges from your own internal thoughts. Call yourself a Christian? Why, you're not good enough. You don't pray enough. You don't read the Bible enough. You're not holy enough. You're not committed enough. You don't serve enough. And friends, the list could go on. For it can be from the outside world. I saw the way you looked at it and you call yourself a Christian. Why, you're a hypocrite. And I think those outside of the church context hear the Christian message as one being like this. You think that you're better than me. And I'm confident that's what the non-Christian hears. And what I want to say is I'm not better than anyone. Just ask my wife. She will tell you. But I am forgiven. And I'm just a beggar who's found bread. And to show you that I'm not better than anyone else, recently I was booked for speeding. No excuses on a Sunday morning. I was going to a new part of a road that's been done and I was just following the traffic. Everyone was speeding, me included. As I looked in the back of my rear vision mirror, I'd see the blue lights flashing. And the policeman pulled me over and that uh, short burst from the police siren, I realised I was in trouble. What made it worse, however, was it a Sunday and I was going to preach somewhere else in that particular service, in that particular church. 
and I've got a very uh, keen conscience. And I'm thinking to myself, as I'm going to church, there will be people there looking and wondering who has been booked. And as I go to speak on that service, they say, I've seen you somewhere else. You were booked this morning for speaking. Why, Carl? You're a hoon. And you're no different from any, anybody else. And what I want to say is I felt my guilt lay down before me on that day and just felt like a common criminal, booked. Everybody could see it. And I want to, I want to say I am no better than anybody else. But God sees it all. Every wrong that I've committed, past, present, and well into the long distant future, and all those accusations levelled against me, whether they're true or not, have been forgiven in Christ. And to make this clear, Paul uses a large legal term in verse 33. He uses the word justification. It's a legal term meaning to acquit or to declare righteous. It's used in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, when it said that we are justified by his blood, declared right by the blood of the Lord Jesus. Now I find that so comforting to hear of God's final verdict towards us because of Christ. It helps me overcome my own insecurity, my need for acceptance and to live in such a way to gain approval of others. Now I'm not suggesting that automatically by becoming a Christian your uh, conduct becomes perfect. That's heaven. But it tells me I've been pardoned by the only one who can give me that perfect pardon. That's the Lord Jesus. And it means that when we're mocked at work for our Christian views, scorned by our peers in the neighbourhood, left out in the cold by those that we like to call friends, his love and his verdict is firm and fixed. And it frees us to be ourselves. Friends, it helps us when our own emotions undermine my assurance with God, my confidence in that relationship. Because it's based on God's verdict, not on my own personal feelings. That's a huge relief. It's not what I have to do but rather what God has done for me in Christ. Paul goes on to say that he was raised to life and is at the right hand of God interceding for us, verse 34. Then if all those things weren't enough, Paul says that nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Yet if you've got your Bibles open, you look at verse 35, you see all those things that may separate us, that may end our earthly existence, but nothing will ever separate us eternally, eternally from the love of God in Christ. And as you look at verse 35, you may be thinking it doesn't sound a great trade-off. The whole possibility of being persecuted and actually dying for the Lord Jesus. I don't know what that's like experientially. But as I read my Bible, look at verse 14 of chapter 8, and it tells me this that our present sufferings 
And for many people, they're real and they're uh, active and vivid and not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Something awaits us that is so wonderful, so marvellous, that the Bible tells us that even the present hardship we may face in this life, and as we look at the news today, it could be a very real possibility, as Christians, will pale into insignificance compared to what awaits for us in Christ. I began this talk by raising the question about Billy Graham's assurance of salvation. Could it be justified? Well, his detractors, they're right. A godly man as such as he is, he is still a man like the rest of us. And in Billy's own words, is in no ways perfect. But Billy Graham's confidence in his salvation is well-founded because it is based on what God has done, not what Billy has done. It is not who I am, but whose I am that counts. Not what you have done, but what he has done. And no obscure rule can be dragged out and held against me against that last and final day. No one can bring any accusations against Nick Cole because God's love is firm and secure. My own sins can't be held against me. No higher court can be appealed to. It has already gone to the highest court in the universe and the only perfect judge in that whole universe has declared me not guilty. What has he done? He is for us, giving us his one and only son. He justifies us, declare us right in his own sight. He intercedes for us and nothing, simply nothing, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that our own emotions, our own feelings at times undermine the confidence that the Bible gives us that we have before you because what has been done through the Lord Jesus Christ. He has paid the penalty for my sins and lived the only perfect life and to put it on my account. Lord, for that we give you thanks. We pray that we'll always hold fast to that security no matter what may come towards us, no matter how our emotions can undermine that. Lord, we thank you for all, all that you've done for us and we pray that uh, we look forward to that last and final day when you'll say in that throne room, well done, good and faithful servant. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thanks, Nick. What a wonderful reminder of the assurance of our salvation. We're going to close this morning's service with one more song, Near to the Heart of God. Near to the Heart of God.
peace of quiet rest near